All right, y'all have done great so far. I know it's been a lot different this morning, but it's just good to be back together. So we get started our time in 1 Corinthians. I wonder how you first heard about Old Oak Bible Church. How did you first hear about Old Oak? That's a question we ask on our welcome cards that we give to first-time visitors. So if you're here for the first time, we'd love to know that. Uh, There's a little slot for you to answer that. I wonder if you can guess what the most common answer is. I wish it was that I heard about Old Oak from a friend of mine. That's the answer that we get the most on our cards, but it's not. The most common answer is the internet. That's where most people hear about Old Oak and new churches. So I want you to picture something. If, if you log on to the internet, whatever device you're using, you're searching for a church, Googling, using some other kind of church search, and you land on a particular website that impresses you. Now, the first component about this website that's impressive uh, is how sleek and clean and modern it is. And then the pictures on it capture your attention as well. The pictures of people in particular, the people at this church are just beautifully diverse. Well, and then uh, more impressive, you see pictures of their building, and it is every amenity available and it is smack dab in an up-and-coming gentrified area of town. So far, so good. You keep exploring the website, and you go to their staff page. So who serves as the pastors of this church? And not surprising, they have some of the best and brightest individuals in Christian circles who went to leading seminaries who have now become best-selling authors. Well, we'll continue exploring this website a little bit. Just to be sure, you're going to go to the fail-safe, the statement of faith on this particular website. And you click here, and everything squares away. It's a faithful presentation of the gospel. So here we are, a very impressive, well-funded, diverse, gifted, doctrinally sound, just great website of a church. You think, you know, just me explaining that, I would go to that church. So you decide to. Show up Sunday morning, assuming that they have in-person worship right now. Um, But you walk in, and things go much differently than you expected. You arrive at this church, and already in the lobby, people are yelling at each other before anything gets started. And then the service gets started, and people interrupt the whole time. Just interrupt like really divisively as well. It's very awkward. And even after serv- during service, you notice some people are acting very strange. And you learn it's because they showed up to church early and actually got drunk at church, believe it or not. And then there's a deacon who serves there who's just you know, a little too open. And he grabs your ear first time there and he tells you about the open affair he's having with his stepmother. What if I told you that this church is in the Bible? This is the church in Corinth, the recipient of 1 Corinthians. Now, the lesson is here. You can't tell a church by its website. (laughs) But also that these people in Corinth were a mess. And the Apostle Paul, writing the letter of 1 Corinthians, he's the founding pastor of this church, he directly addresses their messes. And he does so by lifting their eyes off of themselves and placing them on Jesus, their Savior and Lord. 
And Paul tells them that despite their mess, because of Jesus, they are clean. He tells them despite their mess, because of Jesus, they can walk differently. This is 1 Corinthians. And we're going to spend 12 weeks walking through the first four chapters of this letter. And we're going to see the grace of God in Jesus Christ, how it heals, restores, and transforms a church that is really messy and a church that is full of sinners. So I believe you have it printed in your bullets in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Uh, I've looked forward to saying you could find it on this page of the Pew Bible, but we're going to save Pew Bibles for a little bit. So we're going to read the first nine verses of this book this morning. So you can follow along as I read. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new to Old Oak, this is pretty much what we do every Sunday. Someone, usually me, takes a portion of the Bible seeks to explain its original intent to its original audience within the context of the individual book that it comes in and with an eye to the greater context of the Bible as a whole. Then we bridge that meaning to today, to apply the word to ourselves. This is what we call expositional preaching. Sometimes we go verse by verse through a particular book. Sometimes we go chapter by chapter. And other times we go chapters by chapters. Uh, but through a, a genre of a letter like 1 Corinthians, it's best to go a little bit slower. So that's where we're going to start today. And today's passage seems like a formality. In many ways, this is just a standard introduction of a letter. And a lot similar to the rest of the Apostle Paul's letters. So if we're familiar with the Bible, we might glean over this passage kind of like our eyes glean over emails or letters that begin with, I hope this letter finds you well. I don't know what that looks like when I open up my email and, I, and it finds me well, but okay. But this greeting here, when we look at it just a little more intently and deeper, we find that it's much more than a formality, that it actually sets the themes for much of this book, and is purposeful and intentional and distinctly Christian. So its main point or takeaway of these first nine verses of 1 Corinthians is this. You can find some blank spots in your bulletin if you want to fill it in. That's God's grace upends the world's values. God's grace upends the world's values. Again, this is a theme that runs throughout the Bible and will run throughout this letter as well. So, Here's a roadmap for our time. You'll see this printed in your bulletin as well. Verse one, we're gonna just notice who I am. That's not me, that's the Apostle Paul. Who I am, who you are, that's the Corinthians. What I pray for you, why I'm thankful for you. And we'll close just with some brief application, okay? 
So starting off, who I am. Verse 1, let's start at the beginning, a good place to start. Paul follows the custom of the day to begin his letters by noting who the sender is. So these are details about Paul himself. It's a very brief detail, but if we look at other places in the Bible, it fills out the, uh, the background of the Apostle Paul. You might know that the Apostle Paul's first appearance in the Bible is kind of a cameo one. He shows up as Saul of Tarsus. He's an educated, zealous, religious figure. He's ascending the ranks of a group known as the Pharisees. And the first time we see him in the Bible, in the book of Acts, is when he helps to facilitate the first execution of a Christian after Jesus. Not long after that happens, Jesus himself appeared to Saul, who became Paul, when, when Paul was on his way to terrorize and hunt Christians in the city of Damascus. Now, this encounter that Paul has with Jesus changes him in the deepest and most radical way. He went from hating Jesus to loving Jesus. He went from rejecting Jesus to bowing to Jesus as Lord and as the Son of God. He went from hunting Christians to seeking to make Christians. Now this transformation is so deep, it's so radical, that God has to tell certain Christians around Paul to vouch for him because naturally a lot of people in the church are scared of Paul at this point. But as we see as we continue in the book of Acts, God used Paul to take the message of Jesus that transformed him to other people throughout the Mediterranean world in the first century. Now, a little bit of a background of this letter, of when Paul wrote it, most biblical scholars conclude that Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, from the ancient city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, where Paul spent about three years during his third missionary journey in the 50s. That's not the 1950s, that's the 0050s, the first century A.D., now, knowing this background helps us appreciate just a little bit more what Paul says in the first line of this book when he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Just looking at this description a little more intently, it's both humble and confident at the same time. It's humble and confident at the same time. You know, Paul is who he is. He's going to say this later again in this letter in chapter 15. He is who he is not because of anything special about him, but because God intervened in his life and called him to himself. In other words, Paul is not a self-made man. He is someone who God called. As God called him, though, God made Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, apostle simply means sent out one. In this case, it's sent out by Jesus. The apostles, as we see them defined in Acts chapter 1, were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. They were commissioned by the risen Christ. Jesus established the apostles to govern his church uh, in the church age. And so the apostles had the authority to speak and write the words of God. So here, just the very opening line of this letter, Paul writes from a position of authority. But, Paul understands that this authority is not from him. He's humble about himself. He's confident in the Lord. Friends, that should really mark every Christian, and it should especially mark every Christian leader. Humble about themselves, 
confident in the Lord. Like many of his letters, we see a small detail here. Paul has a co-sender named Sosthenes. He describes him as, as a brother, that is a fellow believer, not as a fellow apostle. So th- this is likely the same Sosthenes who was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth when Paul first went there in Acts 18, like we read a little bit on, earlier on. So having covered who, the, who Paul is, now Paul talks about who they are. So who you are, verse 2. He first acknowledges that they are a people in a place. Now, that might seem like a very minor, very trivial kind of detail that you might see on Final Jeopardy. But we all know that place influences the kinds of people we become. So if you know the Cleveland area, it's interesting when I hear, listen to people who know the Cleveland area find out that my dad is from Pepper Pike, Ohio. Their ears kind of prick up. Because they assume that this makes my dad very stuffy and very snooty. But that is so not the case. Just a uh, warning there. But that's because place influences the kinds of people we can become. So what kind of place were these, were these Christians in? Well, the city of Corinth, a lot of it has significant influences. It was a major crossroads of sea traffic in Greece. It had people with different cultures and religious backgrounds mingling together. Now, Corinth originally resisted Roman rule in 146 BC and was destroyed. But then about a century later, it was reestablished as a Roman colony, going from ruins to riches. Now, the city's wealth fueled a wide gap between rich and poor, and it fueled a competitive individualism. You know, people seeking to advance themselves in whatever way they can. We're going to see both of those at play in this letter. Influences from their culture. Corinth was also known, we're going to see this in this letter as well, Corinth was also known for its anything-goes sexuality. This included cult prostitutes that were a part of the worship of Roman gods. Wild times in Corinth. Acts 18 tells us how Paul brought the gospel to Corinth along with Priscilla and Aquila, two Jewish Christians who were exiled from Rome. And so this is the place, the city of Corinth, where these Christians lived. Our place influences who we become. And it was no different for these Christians. Now we'll see the letters show about what, com- what, what one commentator says. He says the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. But lest we think it all bad, Paul tells the Christians in Corinth that while they may be in this place, they are in this place for a purpose. They are here in Corinth. They belong to God, and they are set apart for Christ in this place. The city of Corinth was where they lived out their faith in Christ. So they may be in a dark place, but these Christians here had a huge opportunity to be a light in a dark place, to be a city set on a hill like Jesus talked about. So as we continue in the book of 1 Corinthians, we too should consider the place God has put us in. The place God has put us in. It's not accidental. We should understand and try to think through how our place influences us in a variety of ways. We should try to know the people who are in this place you know, get to know, and you're able to go back to them, your, your barber, your hairstylist, your grocer, your barista, your neighbor, and know all the opportunities to be light in a dark place. 
So having acknowledged their place, Corinth, Paul goes a little bit deeper to tell them who they are. He reminds them of the deepest and most foundational parts of their identity. We see these in verse 2. Touched on it briefly. Paul says in verse 2 that they are the church of God and they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So that word church in Greek, ekklesia, means assembly or gathering. That's a pretty typical word. But what made it extraordinary was that they were no ordinary gathering of people, but one that belongs to God. So they are a church of God, and they are also sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, sanctified, I don't know about you, when I hear it, it's a very churchy word. A word that we use all the time, we might not be clear about what it actually means. It means simply to set apart or make holy. I just want you to consider for a second, Paul says that these Christians— with all of their mess, with all of their junk, are holy people. How does that square away? Are we sure, is Paul sure about this, that these Christians are holy people? Well, yeah, and that's the great news. Well, there are a couple of observations we can make to help us understand how this works. You see the word sanctified there in verse 2 is actually in the perfect tense, meaning that it's a verb that communicates an action that's already been completed. So really we could read it as those who have been sanctified, something that's already done. When the Bible uses this term of sanctified, it can use it in a couple different ways. It can use it from this standpoint, known as kind of a definitive or positional sanctification, something that's already done, or it can use it as a progressive standpoint, something that we grow into. But here, they have already been made holy. How? Well, another clue from this verse. They have been sanctified, not in themselves, but in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you see that right there. By virtue of Jesus' perfect life in their place, Jesus' death for their sin, even these ragtag people are now holy in God's sight. That's the good news of the gospel. As Paul continues, he tells them that those who have Jesus has now made holy, they are now called to live as holy. They've been made holy, and now they're called to live as holy. That, the word saints in verse 2 actually just means holy ones. So as many others have said, the Christian life is living out who we already are in Christ. It's living out who we already are in Christ. So it's like the orphan who gets adopted by a family. That orphan is now a part of that family, but that orphan is going to have to grow in what it means to live and be a part of that family. Live out who we already are. So Paul's telling them who they are. He reminds them at the close of verse 2 that they are not the only ones who God has made holy through Jesus and is now called to live as holy. The church is bigger than what's in Corinth. So whether we are discouraged about ourselves as a church that is too little or a little too puffed up, we do well to take our eyes off of just ourselves and to notice and remember that God has people beyond this place, that God is on the move throughout our community, that God is on the move throughout the world. Remember, God's plan from old has always been to redeem those from all nations, not just the one where we find ourselves. 
So as Paul reminds the Corinthians of who they are, he tells them their deepest bonds with other people is not a common place. It's not a common socioeconomic status. It is not a common color of skin. It is not a common political persuasion. It is not a common emperor. It is a common Lord. The one who has saved us, unites us, and the one whom we follow. So this is who the Corinthians are. We're still kind of in the formalities of this letter, though. Who sent it? Who he sent it to? The formalities continue in verse 3, where we see what Paul prays for the Corinthians, what he prays for them. Again, verse 3 looks like a formality, but it's a distinctly Christian statement, a distinctly Christian prayer. The order is purposeful here. So this word grace or charis is God's undeserved favor and mercy given primarily through Jesus. Peace, a term with a lot of Jewish background, you know the word shalom, peace is the result of God's grace. So the order is purposeful. Because of God's gracious, of God's grace to give us Jesus, we now have peace with him. Grace and peace. Distinctly Christian prayer. And notice also just the prominence of Jesus, at least in this statement and throughout what we've read so far. The prominence of Jesus. So far we've seen Paul as an apostle of Christ Jesus. The Corinthians were sanctified in Christ Jesus. Christians around the world are those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus. And now grace and peace come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Emphasis on Jesus. That was a quick point, admittedly. So, who I am, who you are, what I pray for you, the last part of Paul's opening, he tells the Corinthian Christians why he is thankful for them. This is verses 4 to 11, the longest chunk of this passage. Why he is thankful for them. This is another really uh, um, familiar component to Paul's letters. And like his other letters, Paul finds constant reasons to be thankful for the people he's writing to. And Paul models a way to give thanks for people that gives the credit and praise to God while encourages people at the same time. We do really well to follow that model if we can, to give the credit and praise to God while encouraging people at the same time. So Paul is thankful for God's grace in them. We've already seen God's grace in them through how he's called them, through how he saved them. We remember those details of they're sanctified, they have peace with God. But now Paul's thankful for God's grace in other ways. God's grace for Paul is like that handkerchief the magician keeps pulling out of his sleeve. It just keeps going and going and going. Paul is thankful here for God's grace that has equipped them. God's grace that has equipped them to follow Christ and serve his people. So look at verses 5 to 7, just real briefly. Verse 5 says that God has blessed the Corinthian Christians with speech and knowledge. Verse 6 says that this blessing has validated the truth and power of the gospel, that God really does save and change lives through this message. Verse 7 says that God has equipped them in such a way so that they have everything they need to follow Jesus until Jesus returns. A couple of observations here. Remember how we said the Corinthians were already made holy, were already sanctified because of Jesus' work in their place, and now they are called to live as holy. So here, verses 5 to 7, Paul is saying that God gives us what we need for what he's called us to do. 
God gives us what we need for what he's called us to do. It's like someone telling you to start a garden, but instead of leaving you with nothing, gives you the seeds, the soil, the equipment you need for the garden. So God has, out of his grace, God has equipped the Corinthians with speech and knowledge to live out their faith in Christ. So later on in this letter, Paul's going to make clear that just because God has given them what they need doesn't mean that they use it rightly. To use the garden example again, they started using their pitchforks not for gardening but for fighting. So the Corinthians' gifts of speech and knowledge turned, that turned them into competitive know-it-alls. Their greatest gifts turn into their greatest liabilities. But Paul here is still thankful for their giftedness and just very subtly reminds them of their gift's true source. So Paul gives thanks for the grace of God that has equipped them. In verses 8 and 9, he gives thanks to God for his grace that sustains the Corinthians, that sustains them. So here in verses 8 and 9 are God's gracious promises to them for their future. The God who has saved them will keep them. The God who has changed them will remain with them so that they will be guiltless, Paul says, on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ when the king returns to establish his kingdom. Again, this is, this is a surprising statement. Guiltless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because other places in the Bible, like Romans 3, indicate that when we stand before God on that day, we will not be found guiltless, but guilty. So how does this work? Well, just like Jesus has made them holy, because God sees Jesus' holiness in their place, so Jesus also makes them guiltless, because Jesus bore their guilt, all of it, on the cross. So the promise here must be that God will cause the Corinthian Christians to continue to believe in Jesus, their substitute, to continue to hold on to Christ who goes in their place. Like we sang before, we can never keep our hold. God must hold us fast. And verse 9 assures us that God is faithful to do this, to bring us home, to dwell with Christ face to face forever. So here we are. One of you heard or know Deuteronomy 6. It's the Shema. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. It's called the Shema, which means listen or hear. It's also referred to as the greatest commandment later on. But right after these verses are important instructions to the ancient Israelite people. After these verses, it says, And these words I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and your gates. So we look back at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. We see God's amazing grace we should do the same as Deuteronomy 6 tells us. Write God's grace on your heart. Say it out loud. Keep it in front of you at all times. God has given me peace with him through Jesus. When he looks at me, he sees him. God has given me his spirit and his word to equip me and strengthen me 
so that I can grow and serve and persevere as a Christian. God has promised to hold on to me, to fan the embers of my faith when it is dying. God has promised to bring me home to him where I can see Christ forever. You say these aloud. You keep these in front of you. Write them down. Find things that remind you of God's grace. And in all the distractions that our lives offer to us, you focus here like Paul does. Now throughout our time, just in these first nine verses of Corinthians, uh, we've seen how grace is surprising. Grace is surprising. So just in closing, I want to cover four ways that grace surprises us, that it upends our tendencies and even the world's values. So very briefly, number one, first way that grace upends. When we would keep ourselves down, grace lifts us up. When we would keep ourselves down, grace lifts us up. If the Corinthians had their wits about them, they'd feel the weight of their past choices. They would feel the pain of their wrong. And yet, like Paul says, they are holy people. They have been made holy and clean in Christ. When we would keep ourselves down, grace lifts us up. This is captured really well in a letter from John Newton to another pastor. John Newton is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, which we'll sing very soon. John Newton said this, You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, you cannot be too aware of the inward and inbred evils you complain of. But you may be, and indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then not only express a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when you examine your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils you complain of. So here, friends, if you can't get rid of the thoughts and regrets of your past, it's not that you're wrong to view your sin as wrong or view your sin as sin, but you're wrong to let it control you. You're wrong to let it control you. God's grace forces us to go beyond that point and to say, yeah, that was me. But God forgave me. God forgave me. You believe that God's word is true, that Jesus really did pay it all, not some. So that all that matters now, really, is not who you were, but who you are in Christ. Second way, God's grace upends either our tendencies or the world's values. When we would puff ourselves up, grace brings us down. When we puff ourselves up, grace brings us down. We notice all just the subtle jabs that Paul gives uh, to the Corinthians here. He reminds them that the world does not revolve around them. He reminds them that their giftedness does not come from them. This reminds me of a parable that Jesus once told. He told a parable about a man who managed a vineyard. And he needed laborers for one particular day, so he went out and hired some people in the town. And he hired some people at the beginning of the day and agreed upon a wage. 
So these people got started working, and they observed, they started to notice that this manager continued to hire people throughout the day. And they started to look at their own work and compare it with the work of the other people that they were doing. And the people who got hired later on were paid the same wage that they agreed to. And they started to feel the unfairness of that. They felt like they deserved more than those people. They were upset when looking at how others were given so much but had done so little. Who does this manager think that he is? Or the same kind of entitlement and arrogance that marked the laborers hired at the beginning of that day marked the talented and gifted Corinthian Christians. And it marks many of Christ's people still today, puffing ourselves up. Rather than simply enjoying the grace of Jesus, we murmur and are miserable. We get good at doing church. We know the lingo. We double down on our preferences and positions. And sooner or later, we start to think that God owes us for what we've done. Friends, take the advice of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Stop watching the clock. Stop assessing the amount of work you've done. Stop keeping a record of it in your head. Forget everything except the glory of God, the privilege of being called to work for God at all, the privilege of being a Christian, the privilege remembering of all, that grace has ever looked upon us in the first place, bringing us from darkness to light. So you see here in the, these first two points how grace upends. Whether we have too low a view of ourselves or too high a view of ourselves, Either way, we are preoccupied with ourselves. And instead, we should be occupied with Christ. Start taking your eyes off yourself and start spending more time looking at him. Third way, grace upends. When we would live to ourselves, grace makes us live to Christ. Now, the Corinthian culture is a lot like ours. We're going to see that as we go throughout this letter. Uh, the people in that culture asserted that they must live out their individual desires. You know, self-expression was just a baseline principle of their lives. Now, we might think that since Jesus has paid it all, set us free, now we can truly live the life of self-expression we've been waiting for. Now we can truly do whatever our hearts desire. Friends, imagine how this would work, though, in something like a marriage. Imagine how this would work in a marriage. You know, in the, the dating and courting phase you are on your best behavior. You put your best foot forward. You do all that you can to assure of your thoughtfulness and kindness and so forth. And then there's a shift that comes when you finally have proven yourself and your significant other accepts you. And what happens after that? You say, oh, now I'm off the hook. Well, unfortunately, that is often the case. But that is not love. Instead, we who have acceptance want to continue to love and serve the other simply because we love and serve them. We love them. In fact, God's grace that has brought us peace with him does not give us incentive to live however we want. It would give us more incentive to live for him because it assures us that we are secure 
That gives us strength. That gives us desire to live out who we already are in Christ. Fourth, final way, grace upends. When we would be easily bothered, grace makes us gracious. When we would be easily bothered, grace makes us gracious. I'm going to ask you a dangerous question. Who is somebody at Old Oak who annoys you? You can be real with me. Don't say it out loud. You don't want to spread COVID-19. That's okay. You know, the Corinthians, they gave Paul a lot of headaches. Paul was going to address their sin. Paul will address their blind spots. But at the outset of this letter, you see Paul makes it clear that he is thankful to God for them. He's thankful to God for them. Friends, can you make sure that you remind the people around you that you are thankful to God for them? Can you make sure that you remind the people around you, especially your fellow Christians, that you are thankful for them? That you, can you point out the signs of God's grace that you see in their lives? And I wonder, do you know how Paul could have this heart? How Paul could have this heart, even though he was an apostle. Paul could have this heart because he was as shocked as anyone that God could look at him as holy and guiltless through Jesus. I could just picture Paul and say, me? A guy who, who used to curse Jesus, who used to kill people who followed him? Me? Now I'm forgiven through the guy I used to hate? Who am I to have an ego and be bothered? The same grace that saved me, that sustains me, saved and sustained them. So in a moment, when we take the Lord's Supper, I'll say to look around, to see those who God's redeemed, those the Son of God purchased with his own blood, and those for whom he promises to finish the work he started. And when we do that, friends, be thankful to the grace of God in them. Here it is, the beginning of 1 Corinthians. I'm excited to start this journey with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your grace in Christ. Uh, Lord, we are nothing without it. Keep us humble about ourselves, confident in you. And Lord, help us be gracious. When we are down or when we are too up, fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.